Well, welcome back from the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone. Welcome to several new people. I see some faces here that I don't recall having seen in services before that I don't know yet, so I'll hope to get to meet you after the services. Welcome back to some faces we haven't seen for a while. Uh, I think Mr. Dart and Charles Gross are over in the Dallas-Fort Worth combined services today, and they're having a special meeting because those two churches are to be put together in one church. Sorry we can't provide a little better weather for you here today, but at least it's uh, weather. We, we need the rain anyway. Mr. and Mrs. Fulton are visiting here from Tucson, where he uh, pastors a small church. I don't know how many people are meeting there now. How many, Mr. Fulton? About 20-some over there in Tucson, Arizona. They're on their way back from Virginia, where they were in Williamsburg for the Feast of Tabernacles, so they still got a long drive. They're going across just about the whole nation by the time they get home. I have a strange aversion I want to talk to you about I grew up with when I was a kid in Oregon. My father used to take me along when I was a little boy to a place called Scrabble Hill. I thought it was very well named because it was an ugly part of Oregon. Uh, some rolling hills not too far from Salem. And he was kind of a co-pastor with some of the Church of God Seventh-day ministers during that day. And as a little boy, I grew up watching some of these ministers and the way they performed, the way they talked, the way they conducted themselves, their body English, uh, what they preached, what they said, the way they sang. There were certain little idiosyncrasies that many of them began to develop that even as a young boy, uninitiated in this business of religion and the church and so on, I began to notice. I always wondered why when several of them, four or five of them, for example, would stand on the front row during song services that it was time for calisthenics. I, I don't know if you know what I mean, but they would bounce on their toes. And I, I, I grew up watching, what in the world is that? And they'd be standing, a whole line of them, kind of, you know, like a camshaft was underneath their feet. And uh, one's going up, and the other was coming down, they're singing, and every now and then one of them would bounce on his toes like this. And I, I watched some of these people. I could give you a lot of names, but I won't do that. And as a boy growing up, I developed a real aversion to the ministry. When I ran away from all of that to get out from under a minister father and out from under a church and the church that I felt was trying to keep me under his thumb, and I joined the Navy, I came back out of the Navy after four years, began dating a young girl named Shirley Hammer. Well, at the time I was required to take a few classes in Ambassador College, and lo and behold, one of the doctrinal papers that I was supposed to submit I did, I believe, in concert, maybe somebody could help you, I forget how we did this, or maybe they put it together, I forget, with John Hill. But I couldn't believe it because my father chose that article to go into the Good News magazine, and I had not been baptized, I was not a member of the church, but I was merely required to take that one class in theology, and so I wrote, and I'm sure my wife still has the letter, because once in a while every ten years if we move she'll show me the old letter box she kept every one of the letters I ever wrote her and I wrote to her and told her I think my dad is trying to work a deal where he gets me into the ministry and I told her how outraged I was how angry I was it was never going to happen matter of fact I remember telling her that if anybody ever tried to get me in the ministry I'd probably flatten him with my fist that is how angry I was about the idea that I would ever be in the ministry 
Well, some things happened in my life. I won't belabor, but eventually I did become baptized. I went to my father. I began to study some of the literature that he had written and began to study the Bible, and I made the first mark ever in my Bible. Later on in that same year in freshman Bible class, there were some things that I simply could not gainsay and I could not disprove and against my own will and my own carnality. I began to realize that much of what my father, at that time I thought 100% of what my father was preaching, was right. And I could not disprove it. And finally I read the book that on baptism, and the idea began to dawn, well, maybe I could even be baptized. Because for, before that time I really thought that I was beyond that point. I thought that I had been such a grievous sinner that probably other people were far better, and they had gotten to a place in their lives where they could qualify, but certainly a guy like me, I could never contemplate being baptized or become a member of the church. But eventually I did, and even then the idea that I would ever do anything more than that but just continue in a job and try to earn a living for my family never occurred to me. I remember how outraged I was when my brother Richard David was ordained because I felt that it was merely a political little bit of nepotism on the part of my father. And I know some of the other people did too. I since came to believe and understand that that was wrong of me and that he was more than eminently qualified and should have been ordained. But finally the time came in 1955, in about July, my father announced he was going to ordain about four people, including Norman Smith, Gerald Waterhouse, myself, and Dean Blackwell. I went roaring over to the Mayfair basement where Roderick Meredith had an office, wringing my hands in some concern, and said, no, this can't happen. And I said, I'm not about to go going to be ordained. I will never enter the ministry. I am not called to the ministry. I do not choose the ministry. It's the last thing in the world I want. I'm utterly unqualified. Now, this is all very comforting to me. It is very important to me personally that every bit of this actually took place. That I really felt the way I felt. Because I have never seen in my life a greater core of volunteers, unless it was the Peace Corps, than the so-called ministry in church after church after church in religion per se, generically, in every kind of religion and especially in the Protestant Bible Belt of American Protestant Evangelical Fundamentalism where I see a tremendous host of volunteers. But finally my father came to me and we had a very serious talk up in the penthouse office and he began to tell me that my objections were the very reason why I was qualified. He turned it around and he said, Ted, if you felt you were qualified, if you felt that you wanted the ministry, if it was something you had been desiring, I would not ordain you because you would be grasping for something that God had not called you to. But he began to tell me that God had called me. He told me about my birth. He told me about being born with yellow jaundice. He told me about the fact that I'd never uttered a word. Most little kids, nine months, ten, twelve months, are saying, Mama and Dada. I'd never said anything more than, mm-mm, until I was over two years of age. He told me all sorts of things that battered down my arguments. And so in July of 1955, I was ordained. And yet I have never overcome my aversion. And I still have it. I watch Sunday morning television very, very sparingly, and my aversion comes back very strongly. I see someone parading around, prancing around with an open Bible, and I realize this guy is really enjoying himself. He is up there just having a ball. 
And I've rarely ever seen more ego, more vanity, than perhaps in Navy commanders, captains, uh, military men of high rank, especially ensigns. I like to tell that story about the ensign and the commander. I probably told it to you, but I'll just try to tell it real quickly about the slob jockey who in his very first couple of days at boot camp was simply vacuuming or messing around in the hallway of the administration building in boot camp in San Diego. Along came the admiral who was commandant of the base, and he said, hey, buddy, have you got a light? And pulled a cigarette out. And the commandant walked over there and flipped open his Zippo and lit his cigarette and started to walk on. And a lieutenant commander came running up and commanded the swabby to come to attention and just began to tongue-lash him and said, Don't you realize that this is the admiral, the commandant of the base? You're not to talk that way to an officer. You're to come to attention and salute and just really dress him down. Well, he began to apologize all over himself and very kindly the middle-aged admiral looked at him and said, That's all right, son, but just don't ever do that to an ensign. Well, it illustrates my point. If your name were Salk, what would you be famous for? If your name were Pasteur, what would be your claim to fame? Madame Curie? Sikorsky? We know many of these names, Lindbergh. We know the names of scientists and others who have invented very great and very important things. But there's another desire that many people have, and that is to become the inventor of a particular doctrine or a particular faith or a particular religion. I want to talk about today are basically two opposites. The opposites of the satanic feelings of jealousy, of vanity, of ego, of selfishness, and of greed, which basically is to say human nature. And on the other hand, that which goes absolutely contrary to human nature that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, which is humility, generosity, forgiveness, outgoing concern, and love, all of which are absolutely contrary to human nature. In the field of computer technology, your credentials had better match your title, your experience, your education, your ability had better be precisely what it says on your desk and what it says on your pay scale. Only in one field that I have ever known, and that is the field of religion, can there be those who are ignorant who claim erudition those who are unschooled who can claim prophetic office, where the irrelevant can claim a high calling, where the uneducated and experienced, inexperienced can claim vast knowledge and spiritual wisdom, where the mediocre can claim success and spiritual status. In the book of Acts, in the eighth chapter, the apostles ran across a man who actually tried to parlay a satanic business, which was only one step away from necromancy and witchcraft, into an apostleship. And it's interesting, as you look at the history of the early New Testament church, at how many times Jesus Christ himself, for example, said words that he affect, beware of false prophets, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall in any wise inherit the kingdom of my Father, but he that doeth the will of my Father. In that day, he said, and this is in Matthew 7, 22, many shall come and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in thy name? And in thy name have done many wonderful works. Now, who's going to say that? Not the average washerwoman, not the average housewife, not the average young mother. 
Only the volunteers who aspired to prophetic office, only those who tried to be someone in the ministry, correct? No one who is a local lay member is going to come up to Christ boldly and say, but didn't we preach? Which is what prophesy means, inspired speaking. Didn't we cast out demons and do it in your name? And Christ goes on to say, I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. How important is it to you that your Savior spent a great deal of his time saying, Beware of false prophets. You know, I found out that there are millions of Americans who spend decades of their lives searching for the true church. Think about it. They really honestly do. There are people that have been in and out of a dozen churches. There are people who write to me continually, all befuddled because of the former association with the parent church, saying, I want to be right, Mr. Armstrong. I don't want to make a mistake. They say they are the true church, and yet I can't understand why all these things happened to you the way they did. And here you are, and here's this doctrine, and you seem to be doing the work of God. How can that be? And they're confused. And they say, please help me understand. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't, want to, I don't want to do the wrong thing again. I've been had once. I don't want to be had the second time around. And there are people like that, I think, basically in every church. If you knew the percentage of Catholics that are dissatisfied with their church and wondering, should I make a move, but are afraid to because all of their lives have been told, this is the one true church and the Pope is the vicar of Christ and he stands for God. And they, they sort of want to get out and think maybe they should, but they can't. They're afraid. How many Methodists are there who feel, I wonder if I shouldn't be a Baptist? How many Baptists are there who are dissatisfied with the Baptist church and feel, maybe I should be a Seventh-day Baptist? Believe it or not, there are hundreds of thousands of Sunday-keeping, Sunday-going, church prophet, you know, Christian-professing churchgoers in the United States who have an inkling that the Sabbath day ought to be kept, but who don't have the will and don't have the spiritual courage to make the move to get out of a Sunday-keeping church and to join themselves with a Sabbath-keeping group because they're afraid. So it is not an unusual phenomenon at all to say that there are millions of people who continually search for the one true church. People don't want to be wrong. They are, but they don't want to be. Soviets don't want to be wrong. The United States doesn't want to be wrong. I've never yet seen people, as I've said, walk into a church that says the wrong church over the door. There is no church that I know in the handbook of denominations that says the wrong church. There's no church that I know that says this is the devil's church, or this is number two, we try harder, or this is the second best. They all say we're the best, we're the first, we're the mostest, we're the only one. It's the first Baptist church, and on and on. So, no, most people don't want to be wrong. Well, here was a man who had a good thing going, and we won't read all of this because it would take quite a bit of time, but the disciples and the apostles were scattered about, and wherever they were scattered, verse 4, they went preaching the word. Philip, verse 5, Acts 8, went to Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles, which are, after all, absolute proof. Christ said, by their fruits you shall know them. And miracles are a demonstrable proof or testimony as to where God is working if miracles and the truth go hand in hand. Miracles without the commandments, miracles without the truth are suspect. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many were taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed, and it was great joy in that city, which had, incidentally, a great cathedral or a great uh, 
I should say, church, really, to Asclepios, a temple is, I think, the word I was searching for, to Asclepios, uh, one of the pagan uh, Hellenistic gods, allegedly, of healing. And there was a certain man called Simon, which before, in the same city, used sorcery. And sorcery is, of course, seances and, you know, the tarot cards and cats' intestines and all this stuff. And bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, or that great one of God, as some versions say, to whom they all gave heed. Now, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get a crowd. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with some of the big cities in the heat of summer, like walking through the ghettos of New York City or going down some of the areas where you see some guy with a couple of spoons in each hand suddenly begin to wrap them on his thighs and do a lot of dancing around and jigging around in the street, something like that, and a crowd will gather. You ever seen things like that? You ever seen people just performing? You ever seen blind men with a fiddle walking along with a tin cup playing that violin where it bring tears to your eyes and the crowd gather? But you know, people can do strange things. Little kids do it in the playground in recess in the 11th grade, whatever, to gain a crowd, to get attention. I walked into a supermarket during the Feast of Tabernacles out in Santa Cruz, and here were two young guys wearing black leather jackets with absolute obscene pictures I will not even describe, as raw and obscene as any picture you could even begin to imagine, drawn in white on their jackets. Half of their heads shaved, the other half blonde but black roots and all sorts of bangles and spangles and beads and so on and fringes and black, ugly, filthy-looking jeans with black motorcycle boots. And they probably were about 16. What were they trying to do? Get attention, right? People look at them. Now, from the peer group, what were they trying to do? Same thing. Get attention. Uh, they probably should have been arrested and, and taken down and, and had those clothes declared uh, whatever, but uh, nevertheless, it, I'll guarantee you this, you looked at it and you almost fell over. You, you just couldn't believe that a human being would appear that way in public. But people will do almost anything to get attention. Simon was a person who obviously was a man who loved attention, who loved to bask in the sunshine of adulation, of attention, of a crowd. He had to be spotlight front and center, center stage. He had used sorcery. They gave heed, all of them, and they said in verse 10, from the least to the greatest, including the most expensive, you know, wealthy and the educated in town, saying, this man is that power of God which is called great, as it says in the margin. Or, this man is that great power of God. They didn't make any differentiation between which God they were talking about. They thought that he was God's prophet, God's great, powerful, miracle-working prophet for that city. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them. They had had real strange-looking things that he could not even begin uh, to, uh, that they couldn't begin, I'm sorry, to explain with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, including some of Simon's former converts. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, got right next to Philip, and just was like a shadow, and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. And I'll tell you something, a little bit of insight. He wondered even more than all the other people wondered. Because the other people were accustomed to miracles, but Simon knew that his were fake. 
So he really wondered, because now, just like Janice and Jambres said, when they could not duplicate the final miracles during the outpouring of God's plagues on Egypt, they said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is not trickery. This is not demonism or witchcraft. God Almighty is involved in this miracle. Now, this time, Simon himself wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done, because he realized these people have got a power that I don't have. This is the real item. This is the real article. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. They, the apostles, plural, sent Peter and John. So Peter was being sent. I won't belabor that. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he thought, I'm going to try to get myself allied with them. I want to be part of this. This is the way of the future. This is where the real power is. And he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. Why? What was his motive? His motive had nothing whatsoever to do with the people receiving the Holy Spirit. He said, Give me power. And the evidence that he had the power was, incidentally, that people received the Holy Spirit when, through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and the laying on of hands, that phenomenon took place. Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God can be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot, absolutely proving that he was talking about trying to purchase an apostleship, because he's referring to the lot which was cast which d differentiated between the two and resulted in Matthias replacing Judas Iscariot. You have neither part, so he had neither calling, he was a volunteer. He was trying to buy his way in. He had not been chosen in the ministry. He's part of my aversion. He's one of those that I became absolutely, uh, you know, just disgusted with when I was a boy growing up. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. He wasn't even converted. He didn't have a right heart. He didn't have a right spirit. He had a wrong heart, a wrong spirit. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart... You see, this was something way down deep inside that I talked about in the feast and that uh, Ralph referred to in the sermonette. Because it is that, it is the heart, it is the little precious thing being developed inside of us that must be nurtured and protected. The exterior, well, that's easy. We can put our best foot forward. We can present an exterior to people. But it's that interior. And you read that interior. God certainly does very quickly and instantly. And you do, you read it by the fruits. And so Peter said, Pray God that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness... He was bitter because of jealousy. Jealousy and greed, very, very close companions. And in the bond of iniquity, like Satan's bonds holding him captive in sin and iniquity. Then answered Simon in a piteous way, actually turning it around, and his statement is accusative of Peter. Pray you the Lord for me, brother Peter. Bless your heart, Peter, that none of these things which you have spoken, these evil things, come upon me. So he didn't say, pray that I'll repent. 
or pray that God will help me repent, or pray that I can overcome, or pray that I will receive the help I need. But pray God, because other people were in the audience, other people heard this exchange, other people were being affected, that none of these things which you have spoken, making Peter the bad guy, come upon me. So we know that Simon Magus, and I won't belabor this either, was absolutely catalytic to the beginning of the apostasy and may in effect have become the Simon Pathor or Simon the Peter who actually was in Rome because Peter the Apostle never was. And in the latter part of the first century this man may have actually been catalytic to the beginning of what eventually became the Roman Catholic Church. I want you to see what God says about volunteers. Let's go to Ezekiel, the 13th chapter, right quickly, and I'll try to hurry through just a few of these things. The Holy Spirit inspired these to be in the Bible, and there is one that I want to, to uh, conclude this one few series of references with, which is so shocking that I've got to lead up to it, because you're not going to want to believe it. You're going to want to reject what the Bible itself tells you. It's going to be so strong, you won't want to believe that this is really going to happen. Because some of you are going to be taking lightly what I'm saying, saying, well, what, what, what burrs he got under his saddle? What, what's the deal here about this uh, aversion to ministers in the past and so on? Chapter 13, the book of Ezekiel, the word of the eternal came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear you the word of the eternal, thus says the Lord God, Woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit, and have seen nothing. Israel, your prophets, are like foxes in the deserts. You've not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge, meaning pointed out the sins, the flaws, the mistakes, so that you actually build up the wall, spiritually speaking, by analogy, for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the eternal. They have seen vanity. That's to appeal to people, to get a following, speak smooth things, speak deceits. And lying divination, having to do even with satanic inference, saying, The Eternal saith, God saith. I recall so many times hearing the kind of pomposity out of the pulpit that was absolutely embarrassing. Let me, let me try this one on for you one time. Nighttime service, big crowd of God's people out there. The evangelist takes the platform, walks up in front of everyone, Here's exactly what he said. May I say good evening to you all. That blows my mind. Sure, he can say it. No, don't say it. You know, what are you going to do with the deal? May I say? If I walk up here today and I say to you, may I say greetings to all of you. It blows my mind. I don't know how to do it. Well, I know how to do it. Obviously, because I can mimic this guy. But that type of thing embarrassed. I want to call out of my chair. Oh, come on, you know, please, get off the vanity. There's no big deal because you're up there in front of everybody. You ought to be like most of the rest of us when we started out and scared after that. You don't make a mistake. I actually had to pin my pocket shut the first time that I tried to speak because I kept putting my hand in my pocket. And they said, Ted, don't put your hand in your pocket. So I took safety pins and pinned it shut so I couldn't put my hand in my pocket. First time I ever gave a speech, my kneecap was shaking so hard that my right pants leg was shaking. And the change in my pocket was making a dull noise. Uh, scared me half to death. I didn't want to do that kind of thing. I know people don't believe me, because I've got lots of folks that are just jealous to the point of, of bright green envy. 
would love to do what I'm doing right now today. And I'd love to have somebody else doing it, me sitting in the back row with my grandchild on my knee, frankly. And if the angel that ever comes along and tells me, Ted, you got the wrong calling, I'm still going to kiss his foot and back off and say, you're right, I want someone else to take over because I have never aspired to the ministry to do what I'm doing even today. It's a matter of practical fact. But... I won't belabor that. I can't help it. It's not my fault. I think it is something that God did and not something that I wanted to have done. He said in verse 6, They have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, The Eternal saith, and the Eternal has not sent them. And they've made others to hope that they would confirm the word. Have you not seen a vain vision, and have you not spoken a lying divination, whereas you say, God says, albeit I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken vanity and seen lies, therefore, behold, I am against you, says the Lord Eternal, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and the divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. As James says, Beloved, do not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the harsher or the greater judgment. It's a tough job, and one where your tongue can get you in terrible, terrible trouble. In Ezekiel 34, right quickly, God caused the prophet Ezekiel to say a great deal about the prophets of Israel. The word of the Eternal came unto me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. You realize all of these scandalous things have been happening and all the reports and this and that. And I, you know, for a lot of my life saw the very same proclivities of building monuments, of spending enormous sums of money for things that had nothing to do with preaching the gospel or helping the poor or the widow or the fatherless or whatever or with even helping people in the church, but rather the other way around. Letters going out to absolutely squeeze the last dime out of people who were on fixed income, welfare, social security, even urging people to, and I won't belabor that because some people think I should just forget all of that, and yet how can I forget it anymore? The Apostle Paul could forget the fact that he persecuted the church. I mean, you've got to take the lessons of the past and apply it to the present and use it for the future. And when letters went out telling people to actually mortgage their home, put a second mortgage on their home, and lie to the bankers to why they needed the money to send it into the church, it just scalded my mind. I just couldn't believe it. I'd take letters like that. But, of course, I didn't get out. I just, you know, rebelled kind of quietly. But uh, I guess I felt there was nothing I could do about it. But I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of that in the world as well. And some of the bank accounts of some of those people, astronomical. You discover huge condos here and vacation homes there, two and three and four homes here and there, gigantic salaries. Now the IRS is investigating a couple of them. Bonuses up to hundreds of thousands of dollars passing back and forth between these people and these religious organizations. Can't believe it. It says, you eat the fat, verse 3, and clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Oh no, just drive it away further. Just be calloused and cold and cruel toward that which is driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. 
Anybody ever seek any of you? Anybody ever seek me? Did any human being that was supposed to be my friend? I've slept in the same bedrooms. I've shared the same tent with dozens of those guys in the past. I never got a phone call from one of them. And that is up to God to judge, not to me. But I'm glad that I'm the guy who didn't get the call rather than the one who didn't send it. It says here very clearly, With force and with cruelty have you ruled them, and they were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. I've had people come to me, this Feast of Tabernacles, brand new in the Church of God, the same old story. They were put out from another organization. And they said, you know, they never called me. They never wrote me. They came to my house one time and just said, you're out, don't ever come back. No explanation. They didn't care for me, Garner Ted. They didn't love me. They didn't want to help me. They just wanted to put me out. You can't believe that type of thing. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Eternal as I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves, and fed not my flock. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Eternal. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. So the shepherds have become what? Wolves. They become the attackers of the flock, not the protectors of the flock. They become the harsh, cruel rulers of the flock, not the tender caretakers of the flock. They are no longer the one that picks up the little lamb in his arms and takes care of him when it's ill, but the one who finds the little lamb and just boots him over the cliff because it takes too much of their time to take care of a sick lamb. So God goes on to say, you can read the entire chapter because it's very, very powerful. He says, verse 16, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I'll feed them with judgment, he says. You can read the rest of it. And he likens it unto cattle. Verse 18, Does it seem a small thing to you that you've eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue? You ever see a bunch of cattle, a bunch of chickens, dirtying up their own pasture, dirtying up their own water trough? They'll wade out into a little pond, take the first water before it gets roiled up, and then just plod around and muddy it up so the later cattle coming in there can't even drink the stuff. And so he's saying this about cattle, about a chicken that won't stand around the edge of a plate of feed and just peck around the outside, but jump in the middle of it with manure on its feet and peck around the outside, stand in the middle of it to keep as much of it under those beady eyes as possibly can. Any farmer knows that, and I grew up on a farm part of the time. So God uses this and shows in verse 21, because you thrust with the side and with shoulder and pushed all the disease with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Therefore I will save my flock and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them. This is speaking now of the second coming of Christ, the resurrection and the beginning of the kingdom of God. And he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. Now look at this because it's very, very ugly concept, and God says it's going to happen. Zechariah 13, verses 1 to 5. 
You won't want to believe this part of the Bible, but your God is the one who put it there. And he says, it shall happen this way. You see, right now, this type of thing can still occur. Uh, those people who wish to arrogate to themselves the idea that they are some kind of a prophet, saying, well, I've had this vision, or I had this dream, or I feel this special calling from God. You know, a lot of people have that. It's the one place, as I've said, where the ignorant can claim erudition, and where uneducated and experienced people can claim knowledge and spiritual wisdom. You can't do that in business. You can't do it in the military. You can't do it in education. You can't do it in any field where dollars are at stake. You can't do it over there in the stock market. You've got to measure up. Your credentials are better measure up to exactly what it says on the door. If you're the vice president, you better have the background, the experience to be able to function as the vice president. Only in the field of religion can some absolute volunteer arrogate to himself great claims and have other people swallow it and believe him and go following off after him somewhere when they're following a complete fool who doesn't know what in the world he's talking about. And God warns and warns and warns. I mean, the New Testament of your Bible is so filled with warnings about false prophets and false doctrines that it seems to be the one major theme that New Testament literature was desperately trying to preserve and protect that budding, little, tender new church from false prophets. Paul knelt down and wept on the sands about 50 miles south of Ephesus with the elders and the ministry from that same church and said, Even of yourselves shall men arise to draw away a following after themselves. In that day, chapter 13, verse 1, shall a fountain be offered to the house or opened to the house of David to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness, talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Eternal of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit, linking the two together, out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, if any will dare to do this in the beginning years of the kingdom of God on this earth, this is a horrible thing to contemplate. You're not going to want to believe it. Then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Eternal. And his mother and his father that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Strong, strong part of the Bible. Absolutely a horrifying thing to think of. The father and the mother able to do that to their own child? Why does God feel the way he does and why am I making some of you uncomfortable in talking about this subject? Remember that sweet, precious little thing that I talked about, the Feast of Tabernacles to which Mr. Reisner referred? Do you realize what an enormous number, uh, what the, the number of human lives there are that have been murdered since uh, yesterday in the United States? Do you realize how many human beings are being murdered right now during the course of this sermon? in clinics all over this country where young mothers are going down to abortion clinics and even right here in Tyler several in the past week and having a fetus that is a human life absolutely murdered and stillborn out of a womb before it can ever develop into a boy or a girl and join the human family and have a chance for eternal salvation. That is murder. My subject is not abortion. 
but by analogy, how much more of a spiritual murder is it to be responsible through lying, chicanery, greed, ego, vanity, jealousy, selfishness, a desire to be front stage center, a desire to have power, a desire to be a leader, to be driving along over here, you know, having a flock following you, to be going somewhere with some group of people who look up to you and feel that you're a spiritual leader and be leading them in the wrong direction towards some cliff where they're going to all topple over and be dashed to bits on the rocks. How about having the spiritual murder of spiritual lives on your record in heaven above? That's the way God looks at it. Otherwise, you cannot understand this scripture. That is a shocking scripture. The idea that parents could put to death their own son for doing something a lot of people are tempted to say so innocent as just preaching a false doctrine. Why does God feel the way he does about it? Because that is spiritual murder and it can be done through vanity. Well, now, wait a minute. What was Hitler's big sin? What was Mussolini's big sin? What about Napoleon? What about Otto the Great? Attila the Hun? What about the so-called great despotic leaders of yesteryear? And even so-called great generals like Wellington and many of the others that we could speak of in both American and British history. What about Harry Truman, who when he was asked by the news media following World War II about that one moment when he made the decision involving the dropping of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima, and they asked him, did you make the decision quickly? And he said, and I quote him, hell yes. Old Harry Truman, salty old Harry, snapped out like that that he could do in 92,000 people in one explosion and had no conscience whatsoever because allegedly he traded those 92,000 for about a million American lives. What do you suppose the great sin of great despots and military dictators really was? It was exactly the same sin as Simon Magus, the same sin as the volunteers I'm talking about, when a completely irrelevant, mother-fixated, partially physically uh, dysfunctional, perverted little would-be painter from Austria could somehow prove to be the, the, the one individual who could emerge to put together the combined frustrations of the German public so as to burst upon the world scene as a great dictator who would plunge the world into World War II and result in the loss of life of some 70 million human beings. One man, one man's ego, one man's vanity held sway over that crowd of gangsters and thugs and perverts and homosexuals. And there is a new time life thing out now that shows every last one of them, Keitel and, oh, I think Bormann and Gelling and Goebbels and Hitler and all of them standing there in their splendiferous uniforms, you know, and a kind of catalog. If you haven't read, you know, William Shearer's Inside the Third Reich and the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, as I have, The Face of the Third Reich, and dozens and dozens of books about these people, then you don't know the demoniacal, egotistical vanity of some of these people and what it was that really drove them. But believe me, it is merely a matter of opportunity. 
of a different time and a different place. But it's the same spirit that drove some of the, of the little uh, egotistical characters I saw in the Scrabble Hill schoolhouse when I was about six years of age who wanted to be in the ministry. There was not a bit of difference in the actual spirit that beat in their heart. It was the same motive, the same spirit. They desired the same thing. The worship and adulation of people. Power. Two opposites on the satanic side. Jealousy, vanity, ego, selfishness, and greed. What do you suppose is the motivation behind the stock market the last few days? Greed. Think of it. One day before the stock market crash, how many people... The mills. How much chromium or molybdenum or tin? How many automobiles were being manufactured? How many farms were out here and how many farmers were plowing in the fields? How many people were at work? Now, with the, you know, within limits, maybe 10 or 20 here and there were fired someplace. You know what I'm saying. The very next day, the very same number of cars are being manufactured, same number of farmers on the farm, same amount of tin, steel, molybdenum, and chrome coming out of the factories. Everybody is exactly the same. But a group of people, some of them in their 30s and 40s, a lot of them just very young men, and I won't make the comment that I was about to, so forget about what race they might pertain to. But anyway, a lot of people in Wall Street, because of certain little fright, decided because they are either the brokers representing big companies, or else they themselves are involved, and it was their money they were dealing with, that based upon fear, which is motivated by greed, they want to hedge their bets and dump a whole lot of shares. Now, these huge big computers... You've got, to, you've got to realize that there are computers all over the country that feed directly in and they have what's called a bottom, you know. So automatically, a computer over here in, in, in maybe the Silicon Valley says that if IBM stock reaches that, sell 600,000 shares. And by, over here is another computer that is automatically set into the tape that says if IBM gets to thus and such, buy so many shares, etc. Well, the computers got into the act. And because they have a stop loss that they put on stocks, the whole thing just kept on going in an absolute avalanche. You've been reading and hearing about it ever since. And look at the absolute unbelievable uh, response that happened all the way around the world. The Tokyo market went crazy. The bottom dropped out. The London market, the bottom dropped out. They had to close down in, I believe, either Singapore or Hong Kong. I mean, all over the world. And what was it? Same number of people at work. Same amount of gross national product, same amount of dollars in savings accounts, same amount of dollars in checkings accounts as the day before, but a lot of speculators based upon rotten greed, thinking I need to make more and lose less, triggered the whole thing. The stock market is nothing more than a gigantic crapshoot. It's just gambling on the future based upon what people think will be the performance of various world economies. It's nothing more than Las Vegas on Wall Street. And basically, it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't even exist. If there weren't any such thing as a stock market, the economy would be in a whole lot better shape. It's just buying on speculation. But anyway, I won't belabor that. But it, it, again, it's absolutely satanic. And look how it's affecting the entire world. And it's even going to affect the United States and be relevant to what's happening in prophecy. All right, we've seen what God says about those who say, God told me thus and such. It reminds me of Oral Roberts, not here very long ago, about a year ago. God spoke to me and told me thus and such. What are you going to do with a man like that? Say, you're a liar? People are afraid to say so. I'm not. 
He's a liar. God didn't talk to him. He never heard a word. God didn't speak to him. God doesn't say to Oral Roberts, you tell everybody you're going to die, I'm going to kill you, unless they send you money. It just absolutely is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And yet people, that's my point. There are people by the tens of thousands, brethren, that got tears in their eyes and all choked up and were deeply moved when Oral Roberts said that and immediately reached for their checkbook. How about the dog racer down there in Florida? The guy gave him something. What was it, a million? I forget how much it was. It was some astronomical sum to put the thing over the amount of money that he decided he had to have by a certain time. It's just unbelievable that they can even get away with that type of thing. But they can and they do, unfortunately. Now, I want you to go to the book of Jude right quickly. This little book is almost like a synopsis or a history of the New Testament church during the time that John was still alive, uh, probably about, oh, 40-some years, maybe 50 years now, after the death of Jesus Christ, when Jude was no doubt a much older man. He is the brother of James, and he very humbly merely refers to James rather than Jesus Christ himself. But the scholars all know that this is Jude, which merely means Judah, which means Judah, and is named after the tribe, or the progenitor of the tribe of the Jews, is the brother of James, who was the brother of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and is one of the early New Testament apostles. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, James, to them that are sanctified, or beloved, called, specially set apart, by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, he says, Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved. Now, why does Jude come where it does? I want you to think for a moment about the fact that God set what are called the general epistles in an order in the Bible for a specific purpose. And they are set along with the line of the three graces that we discovered in 1 Corinthians 13. You see, first of all, James, who wrote of faith. Peter, who wrote of hope, and repeats that word several times. And then you see John, who wrote of love. Faith, hope, and charity, or love, are listed exactly in that order in the Bible. John's book absolutely zeroes in on faith. Faith without works is dead. He has the famous faith chapter in that book. Peter mentions hope time and again, and John mentions love time and time and time again and shows what is love. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. James writes one, Peter writes two, John writes three. Love, three, is final perfection, finality, completion. Faith, hope, and love. Faith begins your salvation, faith in God, faith in Christ, hope, saves you through your life of hoping for it, love completes it and finishes it. Jude comes along sandwiched in between the faith, hope, and love books and before the revelation of the coming great tribulation, heavenly signs, and day of the Lord as a distinct warning about what things are going to be like just before the second coming of Christ. And what is one of the greatest events we are yet to watch for? a religious organization that is going to be at the helm of a United States of Europe and is going to exact gigantic martyrdom, penalty, pain of death, and so on, on who knows how many millions of human beings before it is all over. 
Christ's prophecies, by the way, were not only for his day, and we well know that. And many of the statements that I've mentioned, I didn't even go to the 24th chapter of Matthew, where Christ said over and over again, beware of false prophets, and made that as a part of that great prophecy, of the Olivet Prophecy. So now let's see it from Jude's point of view. During his lifetime, in about 70 A.D., maybe a year or so before the temple was desecrated and Jerusalem fell, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, meaning he wrote to them previously, this is only a secondary letter, maybe a third one, but he wrote other things as well. He speaks of this in the past tense. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, he's referring back to an earlier letter, which we don't have, that you should earnestly contend for the faith. When you contend, the contender is someone who has a pretty tough battle on his hands. He's someone who is almost in a, a, a competitive strife that you've got to really be busily protecting yourself, contending for it. Contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, for there are, not that there will be, not way off in the future, but right here and now, he said, there are certain men crept in unawares, like coming home and discovering a burglar in your bedroom. These spiritual burglars have crept in to the ranks of God's church, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. What does it mean to be ungodly? Can I illustrate the point? Let me just illustrate the point. If you have a problem with a brother, you've been hurt, he hurts you, circumstances, misunderstandings, whatever, Please, someone in the audience, supply me with a scripture that provides us with God's way to solve the problem. Anybody know what chapter that is? Many of you do. Matthew 18. Is there anyone here who can suggest that we could improve on Matthew 18? Is there any way to improve on it that you know of? To improve on something Christ said? Not a human being in this audience is going to tell me I can improve on Christ. I can improve on Christ's method, on Christ's commandments. You can't improve on that. That's the most beautiful way to settle things that there has ever been in the history of the world. But you know, in some cases, people will say, well, that won't work, or it's too late. Or, well, I, no, I can't do that now unless he would do this and such. You see, people think that turning the other cheek works. It doesn't work between you and him. And going directly to your brother because you obey Jesus Christ and say, I want to get this thing straightened out. I'm going right now directly to my brother. Doesn't work all the time in helping you regain your brother. What does work is that when you turn the other cheek, even if he hits you again, it works with God. If you go directly to your brother, no matter whether he turns you away and won't listen to you, it works with God. It goes down on the positive side of your ledger. Up there in heaven, the angels say, He did it Christ's way. It scores points with God. You did it God's way. But down here below, it doesn't work with your brother. So you say, well, he's mad at me. So therefore, I'm not going to my brother. I've seen all kinds of posturing like that from people who are supposed to be converted. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to ask you a question. Are they converted? You tell me. I cannot take 1 Corinthians 13, believeth the best, hopeth the best, endureth all things, is not easily provoked. Love thinketh no evil. 
I can't take that like my plastic overlay you use in the display, you know, to try to tell an executive you ought to go for this deal or buy that or look at and study this thing. And take 1 Corinthians 13 and take it and just superpose it over the character of someone who was in that kind of a spirit. Why does it talk about ungodly men? It doesn't mean people who are out playing the horses. It doesn't mean drug dealers in this context. It does not mean people who are, who are deliberately preaching, you know, satanic doctrines. It doesn't mean people who are down on the, on the floor with a bunch of bats, knuckles, and frogs' legs, dealing in, in burning candles and having seances, because even though God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, we don't really expect anybody who is rebellious to be guilty of witchcraft. It's merely that God is trying to show that when we rebel spiritually, we might as well be down there on the floor dealing in necromancy because it is in the same context. It is destroying that tender, beautiful, little spiritual creature that God once preserved and wants to be born into his kingdom to become a very member of the God family. God Almighty will not induct into his kingdom anyone who will not obey God. And going to your brother, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much you sacrifice of your ego, of your own pomposity, or your own vanity that is at stake, works with God. doesn't work with your brother always, but that's his problem. If it doesn't work with your brother, it works with God. And because it works with God, you are much the better. Because you have improved, you have overcome, you have done that which is is right in God's sight. You have followed God's word. There is no greater way than what Jesus Christ of Nazareth gives us in Matthew the 18th chapter. If a brother is offended, go directly. You go directly. You don't go to third parties. You don't go somewhere else and tell other people. You don't go pontificate to other people about it. You don't write to other people about it. You go directly to your brother. Tell me, is there anyone in this room who honestly believes that a person who resists and refuses and says, I won't do it, is truly godly, truly converted? How do you judge? Are you going to be a judge someday? No, you're not that we shall judge angels. Do you judge that there is an exception? Is there some exception that I don't know about? Am I ignorant of the Bible? Is there some exception of Matthew 18? Where is there a time when you don't go to your brother? You go to third parties? No, you all know better than that. He says ungodly men turning the grace of our God, that unmerited loving forgiveness and pardon that God gives us the way we will lavish love on our precious little child of our God into lasciviousness, which is license and permission, meaning license to try to get around God's laws, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, uh, he's saying that, interestingly enough, wondering, you know, a little psychology there, whether or not they still know it. How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And there's a great deal of that in the United States, and that is the example that they're going to have to finally face up to. And here just right at the feast, or maybe just barely after, there was something like 200,000 so-called gays and lesbians right there in front of the White House, I should say the Capitol, 
out there in the mall in Washington, D.C. with their banners and parading around and jeering at the government because the government won't come up with enough of your tax dollars to remove from them the penalty of AIDS, even though AIDS ought to be solved. And I hail the idea that they ought to try to find some way to do something about it as much as anybody else because it's spilled over into the heterosexual community. But they demand that there can't be involuntary testing. If they join the Marine Corps or the Navy to get in there with all those men, they don't want to go and have their blood tested. They want that to be voluntary, not involuntary. They want the government to try to remove the penalty of sin and let them continue on in their rotten sodomy. Now, you judge. You're going to be a judge someday? What did God do to sodomites way back in that day? He's going to do it again. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Isn't that strange? That is axiomatic, that the people who want power are the quickest to be critical of those in power. Think of it. The people who want power are the quickest to be critical of those who have it. It's axiomatic. It's true of revolutionaries from time immemorial. It is true of political parties. It is true of senators who want to be president. It's true of our own congressional body who are trying to make mincemeat of the president. It's true of people who continually call him a liar and disparage his high office. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not dare bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now where did Jude learn that? Well, we know that John said that Jesus Christ spoke so many things that he said, I suppose if, if he'd written them all in books, the world couldn't contain it. I don't think it means with regard to storage space. I think it means with regard to their understanding. They couldn't handle it. It'd be too tough. It'd be beyond the babe-like measure of our understanding. It would be such strong meat that it would be beyond the milk that we're being fed. But nevertheless, Jew, the brother of Christ, had to learn this somewhere. He didn't just pick it up in some old library. He had to learn. And someone told him about this, even as Christ said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So he was recalling back from that uh, being that he once was at the right hand of God the Father in heaven before he emptied himself and took up human flesh. So he certainly had to teach some of those who were his own brothers. But these speak evil of those things which they know nothing about, but that which they know naturally, meaning carnally, in a mundane human physical spirit, as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam. He said he'd preach anything they wanted him to preach, as long as they paid him for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Cory that said, Moses, who in the world do you think you are? We're just as good as you are. And we think that we probably ought to take over. The earth opened up and they all tumbled in. And Moses went on and continued to do the work. So there's a reason why Jude was inspired to put these things in the Word of God just before the book that reveals what is to happen in the last day. These are blemishes, hidden rocks or stumbling stones, spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, remember what we read in Ezekiel 34 about the false shepherds who fed themselves. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, clouds without water or clouds that frustrate people in a drought. They see clouds coming, they want water, but there's no substance in them. Trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch 
Also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, and we have that example of ancient Israel reminded, and we're reminded of that time and time again in the Bible. Complainers. Is that what we are? Do we go through life doing that? How much do we have to complain about, honestly? Walking after their own lusts, and that lust can sometimes be lust for power, and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration in order to gain, as the original should say, advantage. Party spirit, politics, having persons in admiration in order to gain advantage. But, beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers, when? In Jude's day? In the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Now notice, these be they who separate themselves. Group, separate. It's talking about collusion. It's talking about how during that day, Jude said, there are already certain men crept in unawares. I saw this as a boy. My father and a group of people got together in what you would think should be a, a little scene out of a movie. It's almost like the famous house raising or the barn building or something like that when the couple go off in the buggy to be married and then they end up, you know, in the evening with a lamp turned on and here's a ready-made home and they say goodnight to the newlyweds. My dad is there with hammer and saw and I never saw him do that but once in my entire life. But they're out there with a whole stack of lumber in a vacant lot in the unincorporated part of Eugene, Oregon, and about humpteen, I don't know what it is, 14 or 20, of the local lay members and the ministers got together and in about a week or two built a church. And you know, in later years, that church became a source of more fights about who owned it than you've ever heard of in your life. You can read about it in my father's autobiography in volume one because every bit of it is there. And it was just unbelievable. And of course, I you know, share all those things because not only did I experience them at home as my dad would talk to my mother and talk to us kids and we would know what was happening with all of the people, many of whom are long since dead, who were contesting with him about this pulpit, who wanted the power and so on, but also all the dozens of times that he spoke about it out of the pulpit or in private conversations, and it just deeply ingrained in my mind over all these many, many years of the incredible gamut of politics that I have seen over the decades in God's church that has been from the time I was a sleepy child on the front row as a little boy in 1934 and 35 in Eugene, Oregon. I have never seen a five-year span when that ugly two-headed monster was not alive and well in some quarter or another of God's church. I've never seen a time when the church was completely without any politics, any would-be false teachers, any false prophets, any ministers that, you know, didn't have some motive or other which wasn't exactly out of 1 Corinthians 13. These be those who separate themselves sensual, meaning natural or carnal, not having the spirit. 
Important to understand that. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Anyone who is in the love of God is going to do what I said. Because, you see, the love of God is a forgiving love and a giving love that was willing to give His own begotten Son for the sins of the world while we were yet sinners. And surely that love does not posture. Do you think we're ever going to be in God's kingdom? if we are still so unforgiving that we posture and say, well, this one time when I got this problem with my brother is an exception. This is the one time when the straw broke the camel's back. That did it, you know, that type of posturing. You think we'll be in God's kingdom if we have that spirit? Well, we know better. We just won't be there. Because you can't have the power of God when there would even be one exception. When was the exception in your life? When God said, okay, this one time, I'm going to squash him like a bug for his sins. Instead, let him come to me again and ask for the precious blood of my Savior one more time. When was the one exception in your life that God said, this time, that did it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Your God isn't that kind of a God. And he is not going to put into his family people who are not exactly like he is to be made members of God's family. He then ends with a very hopeful note. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you get that, you dispense it. You give it. You give mercy. It doesn't work oftentimes. Some people aren't able to take it and receive it. Your forgiveness outpoured towards somebody else sometimes doesn't accomplish what you want with him. But oh, does it ever accomplish with God? It works with God. Might not work with that human being you're talking about, but it works with God. And if some have compassion, making a difference, or who are in doubt, it says in the margin, others save with fear. Say, here, let me help you. Let me help save you. Pulling them out of the fire. A figurative statement, but it has to do with rescuing someone who's about to sin to the point they're going to go into Gehenna fire. Hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Again, a metaphor. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, that's Christ, he is able to keep us from falling, and to present you faultless. You don't want to be there with a fault. You don't want to be there with blemishes and blotches and blights. You want to be there snowy white and perfectly clean before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The two opposites, those who volunteer, that shocking scripture we read of what God is going to do in the millennium to those who would assay to take the name and the word of God in their mouths and to pretend to teach it to other people when they have not been called. I have seen in the last 33 years by the fruits that God has performed that my father was in fact correct when I thought he was wrong. I'm sorry. I had nothing to do with it, but believe it or not, I have a calling from God. I did not volunteer. Thank God I am not a volunteer.